0: Welcome to Ragbag's Bonus Bag. Here's part two of my serialisation of the new audiobook, Everything I Am. The first in a series of Ragbag novels. And I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, but I recommend listening to part one first. It'll make a lot more sense. This book is also available as an actual book from Amazon. Buy it, give it to someone you love. That's your mission. Still your mission. Same as last mission, in fact. Right. Here's part two of Everything I Am. Chapter 8 I was all ready to investigate further. Even if, as Uncle Claude seemed to think, the flat was a dead end, I could make contact with everyone on that list and find out what they knew about my dad and his reasons for leaving. Without meaning to, I'd got myself motivated. My main reason for phoning Uncle Claude was because I wanted to know what the cream egg joke meant. Now suddenly, I was faced with much bigger questions. It was becoming more and more clear that I had no idea who my dad was. Actually, that had always been clear. But I'd never really wanted to find out before. It wasn't because I'd suddenly started caring about him. Uncle Claude had behaved so enigmatically... It was impossible not to get drawn into the mystery. But then, a few things happened to prevent me from these investigations. There's no time to even summarise any of it. It's a subject for another book. To cut a long story short, I ended up spending six months in prison. I shared a cell with an older gentleman who didn't possess the power of speech. Or at least, that's how he presented himself. All anyone ever got from him was a nod or shake of the head, which I guess explained his nickname, Noddy. Noddy could speak perfectly well, he just chose not to. One night, 17 days into my stay, he suddenly started talking to me. This is my first stretch in prison, he said. I've been here six months, and maybe I'll serve another six. I'm 68 years old, and I've been a criminal all my life. This is the first time you got caught, I said. Noddy grunted an affirmative. I got older, he said. Maybe a bit too lazy, complacent, something like that. I've always prided myself on never being captured. It's one of the reasons I never speak. Speak, say anything at all, and you give yourself away. Part of yourself is exposed to the listener, and not always the part you intended to reveal. It's also... One of the reasons there are no clear pictures of me. Anyone tries to take my picture, I move so the shot comes out blurry. There are countless such pictures of me, never with a clear capture of my face. I've developed this habit so well over the years that the police had to give up on taking conventional mug shots. They tried taking my picture several times after I was arrested with no luck. Eventually, they took a video and filed a freeze frame of my moving head. If I weren't pretending to be mute, I'd have told them this was a violation of my human rights. I was tempted to claim exemption from being photographed on religious grounds, as I believe photographs capture a person's soul. But I don't actually believe that, and it really wasn't worth speaking up about. So how come you're speaking now? I said. I don't know, said Noddy. You seem like a good listener. And so, starting that night, and continuing for the remainder of my incarceration, Noddy talked and I listened. He told me hundreds of stories. I can't include them all here. As a matter of fact, Noddy's stories would have to be the subject of yet another book, and maybe I'll write it once I've written the other one I promised you earlier. One night, I told Noddy about the secret flat, about the kidnapping, followed by my dad's failed attempts to look after me on Saturdays. I told him about my dad's disappearance and how I intended to fully investigate what went on in that flat before everything kicked off and I ended up behind bars. You're not in here forever, said Noddy. Nothing's stopping you looking into it when you're out. I'll help you if you like. I'll be out too by then, all being well. Really? Sure. I'm pretty much retired now. It would be good to have a project to work on which doesn't involve breaking the law. As a matter of fact, I've grown to be quite familiar with how the police operate, including missing persons cases. I can help you find him. I'm not actually sure that's what I want to do, I said. Maybe my dad doesn't want to be found. Well, obviously he doesn't. He left of his own free will and either he's dead or he doesn't want to return. I feel like I should respect his wishes. So what exactly do you want to investigate? Well, I'd like to know why he left, even if it's just a simple case of him being bored of living with my mum. And I'd like to know about this secret flat. I want to go there again and see if it's the same as I remember it. I want to understand why my dad had a secret flat in the first place. I suppose the bottom line is, I'd like to get to know him without necessarily meeting him again. Well, I can help in whatever way you like, said Noddy. I'm good at finding people, and I'm good at tricking people into revealing their secrets. Really? How do you do that? You'll see. I'll have to be incognito, though. I can't have people knowing of my involvement. Thanks, mate. Chapter 9 Noddy was released a couple of weeks after me. We lived nowhere near each other, but apparently he was happy to make the journey up to my place, putting himself up in a nearby hotel. Less than 48 hours after he got out of prison, he turned up on my doorstep, looking completely unrecognizable. Different color hair, different skin tone, different mannerisms, different voice, American accent. Luckily, I'd got to know him well by this point, And none of this surprised me. This is what I do, said Noddy as he perched on the edge of my couch. My name today is Brad Hartley. I'm on vacation. Tomorrow I'll be somebody else. This is just the way I have to operate in the outside world. Noddy was a prison nickname, as well as being just another character I was playing. But why do you need to be in disguise, I said. We're not going to be breaking the law. It's the way I operate, Noddy repeated, whether I'm engaging in criminal activity or otherwise. It's useful for many reasons. In the case of this particular investigation, we're going to be digging around for information. Remember, I said I have particular ways of getting information out of people. This is how I do it. People totally let their guard down around American tourists. For one thing, Brad Hartley is clearly not a threat to anyone. He's a friendly face and all he wants to do is soak up some good old British culture. And people feel obliged to give him what he wants. Secondly, anyone who comes into contact with Brad are extremely unlikely to ever see him again. After all, as Brad keeps mentioning, he's heading down to London on Friday to see Buckingham Palace before catching his flight home. This perhaps explains why people are so willing to confide their secrets to Brad. They'll tell him all sorts of terrible things, simply because he's guaranteed to never come into contact with any of the people involved. Brad is one of the best extractors of information around. I'm sure you know what you're talking about, I said. I really do appreciate what you're doing for me, by the way. That's okay, Frank, he said. You were nice to me in prison, and that means a lot. We talked strategy for a bit, then headed off for point number one in the plan, the betting shop. I'd already undergone several strained conversations with my mum, in which I attempted to establish the name of the betting shop me and my dad visited in 1986. She initially claimed she had no idea, until I pointed out she must have known, because she made that phone call. Then she claimed she couldn't remember, to which my response was, Why not? Your husband went there every week, presumably for years on end. You must be able to recall at least the name of the place. Her response was, Okay, I do remember, but I don't want to tell you. When I asked why not, she said she didn't want me digging around into my father's past because the past should be left as it is. Then I got a little bit existential when I pointed out that the past is as real today as it was back then. It could even be argued that the past is still happening. That in a very real sense, I am still six years old and my dad hasn't disappeared yet. And as long as those memories exist, those events will continue to replay themselves over and over again. And in the end, she just told me to get me off the phone. I'd been half expecting the business to have closed down or moved location, but as it happened, it was still in that same spot. As soon as I walked in, I recognised it. Same layout, same colour scheme, without the cigarette smoke, but clearly the place in which those events occurred two decades previously. The point of this exercise was to track someone down, anyone from that list who might still be associated with that shop. Noddy's name for our strategy was Good Cop, Weird Cop. And what happened next should demonstrate what that means. I approached the counter and in a loud, clear voice, I announced to the girl at the desk, I'm trying to track down a man called Olaf, who was the manager of this place 20 years ago. Maybe he's still the manager? Or I'm guessing he's changed jobs or retired by this point? The girl smiled politely. ''I don't know anyone called Olaf,'' she said. ''But I can ask around. Maybe some of the regulars remember him. Is he a relative of yours or...?'' ''No, but ultimately it's concerning a relative of mine, Frank Burton. That's my name as well. I'm Frank Junior. He went missing a couple of years ago.'' The girl's smile broadened. ''I thought you looked familiar.'' ''What, you know my dad?'' ''I've been here a few years now,'' she said. ''Your dad was in here all the time.'' His office isn't far, so he used to pop in during his lunch break. Coffee breaks too, quite often. The regulars still talk about him. Well, you know what he's like. Not really, I said. He's a bit of a mystery to me. You probably know him better than I do. The smile was gone now. I can't really say I knew him, she said. I didn't even know he had a son. He's a very good secret keeper, as it turns out, I said. Behind me, Brad Hartley was entering the shop wearing a Union Jack baseball cap. I had my back to him, but in my memory I can see him, expertly stumbling through the door as though entering the shop was in no way intentional. Hello, he called to the room. You make books here? I imagine a few heads turned, but no one responded verbally. The way Noddy recalled the incident later, the seven or eight punters who were in the room at the time looked in his direction as though someone had turned on an additional TV, then were mildly confused by the sight of an actual American standing before them. This is a bookmaker's, right? said Brad. You make books? Laughter this time. (laughs) No, someone said, we don't make books, we gamble, pal. I turned to see Brad's face light up as he strode into the middle of the room. You gamble? He said. What's that? Forgive me, you may be able to tell from my voice, but I'm not from these shores. You don't gamble in America, someone said. Depends on what gamble means. As I say, I don't understand what you're saying. What about Las Vegas? Oh, yes, Las Vegas. Another one for the bucket list. When I go there, I'll take some shots at the machine gun shooting range, visit the replica Eiffel Tower and watch the Penn and Teller magic show. And maybe visit a casino. What's a casino? They don't have them in your part of America. If they have, I've never seen one. At this point, I lost the thread of the conversation because the discussion awoke something within me, a memory from that day in this very shop. After that phone call with my mum, my dad took me to the supermarket before we went home. He stuck me in the child's seat in the trolley, even though my legs were clearly too large to comfortably fit through the tiny holes. My feet dangled down so far they almost scraped across the floor. What actually goes on in that shop of yours, Dad? I said. It's a place for making money, said my dad as he pushed. Most shops you're going, like this supermarket for example, all you can do is spend money. Effectively what we're doing right now is losing money even though strictly speaking we're spending it on essential goods to keep us alive. We're still the losers in this game. We could have grown half the stuff in this trolley in our garden but we've chosen not to because it's much more convenient to come here. Betting shops are different. A betting shop is the only kind of shop where you can leave with more money than what you walked in with. So it's a bit like a bank. I wouldn't put it like that. In some respects, it's better than a bank. In others, it's much worse. It all depends on how you play the game. What game, I said? It's called gambling. You said that, but what is gambling? It's difficult to explain it properly. How far can you count? And count up to infinity, I said. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Infinity is the biggest number in the world. No, it isn't. All you have to do is keep on adding 1 and then you'll get there. Listen, infinity isn't a number, right? But we're not talking about that. I was just checking you can count to a 100. Well, that's easy. One, two, three, four. I believe you, Frank. You don't have to actually do it. I'm just trying to explain how gambling works. Well, let's say there's a horse race. And if I guess which horse is going to win, I can make a £100 even though I only walked into the shop with a £10 note. If I lose that bet, I leave with nothing. I've lost 10 pounds, but if I win, you win 100 pounds, I said, and that's 10 times more than what you started with. How did you know that? Come on dad, 10 is the easiest times table. So you see what I'm saying, there's an opportunity there. Now, most people leave with less than what they came in with. That's how the betting shop makes its money. It's designed to trick people into making the wrong choices. You have to be clever and really put the work in if you want to do well. Most of the people in that shop are there because they like the idea of easy money. And that's why they lose, because gambling isn't easy. Making a hundred pounds is harder than doing an honest day's work. And that's why I'm away from home so often, Frank. I have this other job in addition to my job selling locks. You must make an awful lot of money, I said. I do sometimes, he said. But I'm yet to figure out a way of sustaining it, a way of repeatedly, consistently winning. But I will figure it out, and once I've done that, he made an aeroplane sound effect. (laughs) The sky's the limit. I was so busy thinking about this incident that I didn't hear a word of the similar discussion Brad Hartley was having with the betting shop customers. And when I returned to the room, Brad was shouting at the top of his voice, Do you mean to tell me that I can turn my money into even more money just by guessing the outcome of a sporting event correctly? We'll be rich, boys. We're all going to be rich. A man poked his head out from behind the slot machine. He grinned and declared, Forget sporting events, mate. This is where the big books are. He pointed to the whizzing, whirring contraption in front of him. But Brad had already danced right out of the shop, leaving a strange silence in his wake. I was about to start wondering what the point of this routine of Noddy's had been. But then I realised something. I recognised the guy at the slot machine. He was there that day, 20 years ago. He wasn't one of the names on the list, but he was there. He was bolder, wrinklier, and his tattoos had stretched out a little bit but it was him, it was Dave. Without meaning to, I said his name out loud, and the room had gone quiet, so he was bound to have heard me. Then he said my name too. I approached him and shook his hand. You look exactly like him, he said. How do you know me? Your old man show you a picture or something. I met you once, I said. My dad brought me here when I was six years old. He called you a mug for using the slot machines. Doesn't seem to have put you off. Dave laughed. (laughs) You could say that. You know, I haven't made my millions yet. In fact, I lose a lot. But I swear to you, I'm almost there. I've almost got my system sorted. Tell your old man when you see him. I can't, he disappeared. You haven't got him stashed away somewhere? Not unless he's been playing an elaborate game of hide and seek... So what are you doing here? Well, I'm looking for him, in a manner of speaking. Can I buy you a drink, by the way? I have a few questions, and you look a bit thirsty. I'm six years sober, but I'll have a cup of tea from that machine if you're buying. Congratulations, and yes, coming right up. Actually, let's get out of here. I'd stick around and see how much that tourist brings back from the cash point, but I don't trust myself not to intervene. Intervene how? Either by telling him to keep all of his money, which will annoy the manager, or by getting him hooked on the machine. Let the man make his own mistakes. Yeah, I said thoughtfully. We grabbed a couple of hot drinks in the Café Nero across the street. I'll be totally honest with you, I said. I'm digging around into my dad's private business because I'm interested in getting to know him. I might never see him again, but at least I can find out a little more about what he was like. Well, he was a character, all right. That's how I remember him. But what I want to know is, what about the secret flat he was renting with my Uncle Claude and a bunch of guys from the betting shop? Did you know about this? Dave nodded. Sure, I was one of the people the police questioned when he vanished. They asked if I knew of anywhere he might have gone. I knew about that flat, but I didn't mention it to him. I know how secretive they all are about that place. But seeing as you know about it already, well, what do you want to know? Where is it? Do you know the address? Can't remember exactly. Len took me there once to show me around. Apparently that was against the group's rules, but Len was a bit of a show-off. Is Len not around any more then? He is, but I never see him. What about the others? Omar, Martin, Graham, Olaf, Ben. He blinked when I said that last name, which struck me as odd when I recalled it later. I'm still in touch with Olaf and Graham, he said. I'll give you their numbers. Maybe they'll talk to you, but like I say, they're very protective of that place. They'll hate The fact that you found out about it. I couldn't help but find out. My dad took me there when I was six. We stayed there for a whole week. I could probably figure out where it is based on memory, but then what? I'd rather make contact with someone who has a key. What are you hoping to find there? Well, not my dad, obviously. I know he's not there. I just have a feeling there's something in there, some tiny piece of evidence that's been left behind. Like what? I won't know until I find it. Well, good luck. You do look an awful lot like him. Yes, I said. I've seen photos of him at my age. Thanks for the tea. So who's Ben? I said. He blinked again. I don't know, he said. Omar? Runs a laundrette on K Street. Used to anyway. Maybe he's still there. "'Do you have his number?' "'No, we weren't friends. "'He's not a gambler or a drinker. "'And I got my own washing machine, "'so we didn't cross paths. "'Him and Claude were on some kind of "'local business committee together.' "'Right. "'Claude never mentioned him, then?' "'No, but I don't see much of my uncle.' "'Bit of an oddball.' "'Hey,' said Dave firmly. "'Your uncle Claude is a good man.' Is he? Your dad spoke very highly of him. Good boss, reliable. Very, very, very understanding. Okay, that's interesting. Chapter 10 Later that day, armed with a pair of phone numbers. I texted Graham and Olaf an identical message introducing myself. I told them I was trying to track my dad down and was hoping they could help me out and maybe we could meet up. Graham texted straight back and said he was away on business until the following week but he'd be happy to meet any time after Tuesday. Olaf didn't respond. So I called the number a couple of hours later and it went through to voicemail. The following day... Noddy arrived on my doorstep, dressed as a traffic warden. I invited him inside. Today, my name is Trevor, he said. I'm a very nice person, very caring. People tell me I have a gift for empathising with even the most unreasonable person. I make a very good traffic warden. Nice to meet you, Trevor, I said. Listen, I'm sure you know what you're doing with this good cop weird cop thing but i'm not entirely sure what the purpose of yesterday's routine was in the betting shop that was me getting the crowd warmed up for you said trevor getting them primed for disclosure did it work hmm i said yes now you come to mention it one of the people who responded to brad's antics turned out to be one of my dad's old friends i told him about my conversation with Dave and the messages I'd sent to Graham and Olaf. "'You're welcome,' said Trevor. "'So I thought we could head down to this laundrette and see if we can find Omar.' It "'Seems to me we should be focusing on Ben,' said Trevor. "'From what you've told me, no one seems willing to speak about him, "'which presumably means he's the most interesting.' But how am I supposed to track him down when no one will tell me who he is? A bit of guesswork to begin with. How do you think your dad knew him? Maybe he didn't. He might just be another one of Claude's business contacts. But most of the names on the list are connected in some way to your dad. Could Ben be another betting shop friend? He's not been mentioned in connection with it like the others have. So where else did your dad hang out? Could Ben have been a work colleague? That's a possibility. I literally don't know the names of anyone he worked with other than my uncle. And that would explain why you've never heard Ben's name. So why don't we check out some company records? How? Their employment records won't be public. And Claude won't want me sticking my nose in. But he won't object to Trevor asking a few innocent questions. Trevor? Trevor? That's me. You remember my name's Trevor, don't you? Uh, yes. Trust me, said Trevor. All I have to do is turn up on their doorstep looking all official in a traffic warden's uniform. As I say, I'll be looking all official and I'll come up with some story about how I'm trying to trace an old friend of the family whose name was Benjamin and he worked for them in the 1980s and they're a family-run company, not a faceless corporation, so they'll invite me in for a cup of tea and a chat about the old days because they've always got time for that, even on a deadline day. because that's what separates them from the corporate giants of this world. I realised I'd been nodding my head for a while now. Sounds good, I said, smiling. I like it, Noddy. Trevor. I'd love to be a fly in the wall. I can't do that for you. Sorry. Got some equipment. Hidden camera stuff. I'll send you a link. There's some software to download. And then you can watch through your computer. Really? It's very user friendly. This is brilliant mate. I'm glad to have you on board. And listen. I'm sorry I doubted you. Think nothing of it said Trevor, and I realised he was right. Trevor did have a rare gift for empathy. Before I knew what was happening, I was sitting at my computer desk watching a live feed of Trevor walking across an industrial estate car park. He arrived at the unit where Uncle Claude's company, Boss Locks, was based. The company didn't appear to have a proper reception area. Trevor opened the door, walked straight into the office where a bunch of young admin staff were punching at their keyboards. Hello, said Trevor. Can I help? asked a voice I couldn't see. I'm very much hoping you can. My name's Trevor, by the way. That's an old family friend I haven't seen since 1986. From what I can gather, he used to work for this company and I'd very much like to know what became of him. Everyone stopped typing. "'Do you like a cup of tea?' said another voice, a familiar one this time, Uncle Claude. I'd feared this would happen. There was no way Trevor would get a straight answer while Claude was hanging around. It was a shame I didn't have a means of communicating with Noddy while he was in character. I'd have told him to come up with some kind of diversion which meant Claude had to leave the room while he casually asked one of the admin staff to look up the company records. As it turns out, That would have been entirely the wrong approach. I often wonder what would have happened if I hadn't gone to prison, hadn't met Noddy, and ended up trying to do all of this on my own. And that gets me thinking about the way certain events in your life come together to make it seem like they were somehow meant to happen that way, when actually it's all just a big jumble of interconnected incidents. And even when you try to write a book about these experiences, as I'm doing now, It's a real effort to edit out all the irrelevant bits because mostly that's what real life consists of, a bunch of irrelevant detail from which every now and again some meaning or sense appears to emerge and you think, yes, that's what all this was about. But then you press undo in your head and all the irrelevant detail that you deleted reappears. And anyway, where were we? Trevor accepted Claude's offer of a drink a task which was then delegated to one of the admin staff. Off duty, I hope, said Claude with a wink. Trevor laughed heartily. (laughs) No worries on that score, Mr Button. How do you know my name? You are Claude Button, right. You're the reason I'm here as it happens. Our old friend Benjamin used to mention you in conversation. I forgot the name Boss Locks, but I remembered you. And may I say, you're exactly as Benjamin described. Well, that's funny, said Claude thoughtfully. It's an interesting story of yours, all this Benjamin stuff. I'm afraid to say, we've never had a Benjamin here, not in 30 years of business, which is a little odd when you think about it. It's probably a case of his work name being different to the one he used in the outside world, said Trevor. Take me, at work... I'm usually known as Trev, or often just T. My family knows me as Trevor, so you probably knew Benjamin as Ben, or Benny. Or perhaps a variation on his surname, which sadly I never got to know. He was a very private man, as it turns out, hence me having such trouble tracking him down later on in life. I'm very sorry, said Claude. But I'm the gaffer of this place, and I can assure you there's been no Ben's, no Bennies, and no Benjamins. I say it's unusual, not to everyone, because it's a fairly common name, I suppose. But actually, we haven't had that many staff over the years. We're a family-run company, you see, Trevor. We pride ourselves on having a very high uh, retention rate. All the same, said Trevor, would you mind taking a quick look at your records? To see if there's anyone you've forgotten about. Records? Uncle Claude sniggered. From 1986? I'm afraid it's all up here, mate. He tapped himself on the temple. Or could it be that Benjamin was the surname? After all, I only have one name to go off. Even through the shaky, grainy image on the screen, I could see Claude's body stiffen. No one with that surname, he said quickly. Or something containing the syllable Ben, like Benson, or Benworth, or Bennington. Get out, Claude snapped. Right, said Trevor. Bennington it is. How about the first name? Please leave, said Claude. I don't know who put you up to this, but I've got a pretty good idea. Now get out. Ian, Ian, Mark, Peter, John, Terry, Glen, Peter? Mike? Michael? Mick? Peter? Ian? George? Pete? Possibly? David? Dave? Peter? Peter? Okay. Trevor couldn't help a victorious chuckle. (laughs) You gave it away that time. (laughs) Peter it is. Thanks for your help Claude. Frank says hi. I've got a good mind to report you to the local authority. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha, you could report me to the fancy dress shop where I rented the outfit from. us Chapter 11 After the live feed ended, I had no means of getting back in touch with Noddy until the next time he decided to turn up on my doorstep. I didn't know which hotel he was staying in, otherwise I'd have whizzed straight round there to congratulate him on a fine piece of deduction. I wanted to tell him I was having a wonderful time, and if all of this came to nothing, and we never found out anything remotely useful about my dad, it would still be a worthwhile experience, because whichever way you looked at it, playing detectives was a lot of fun. But I couldn't continue without my partner, and seeing as Noddy was uncontactable, I was going to have to wait. In the meantime, I received a text back from Olaf saying, Sorry, I can't talk. I tried calling him back, but went straight through to voicemail. Two hours later, with still no sign of Noddy, I was beginning to get impatient. I called Olaf's number again, and as expected, went straight through to voicemail. Listen! I hissed after the beep. I know about your secret flat. I know because I've been there myself and seen it with my own eyes. And I know that the police didn't go there when they investigated my dad's disappearance because no one told them about it, which could well be considered obstruction. And one last thing, if all of that isn't enough for you to agree to speak to me, I know about Peter Bennington. Call Me. Back. After taking a couple of breaths, I regretted leaving the message. A minute and a half later, I received a call back from Olaf. Hello, I said. My wife is in the next room, and it's essential she doesn't hear a word of this, said Olaf. So whatever you have to say, please say it quickly. OK, who's Peter Bennington? Peter Bennington, otherwise known as Ben, was at one time a tenant of the flat which I rented out to a group of associates, including your father. Next question. Quickly. Okay, what is the address of this flat? I'm not telling you. Next. Do you have any idea why my dad disappeared? No, but if I was going to guess, I'd say it was something to do with this plan he had. He kept talking about a plan, but he wouldn't say any more about it. He'd make this kind of I don't know what you'd call it. I've lived in this country for most of my life, but English is not my first language. And despite its ubiquity, it's actually very difficult to properly get to grips with. Like, what would you call this? Olaf made an aeroplane sound effect. I'd call it an aeroplane sound effect, I said. So what does that mean? I mean, it'd make that noise, and then he'd say, the sky's the limit? Exactly. How do you know? I remembered it yesterday. This is what seems to be the useful bit of this investigation. Not just the things people are saying, but the things people are reminding me of. Right. That's very interesting. It's actually very nice to speak to you, Frank. You remind me very much of your father. I miss him, and I wish I could help you find him, but I don't think he wants to be found, and that's the absolute truth as I see it. I completely agree, I said. I don't think he wants to be found either. He left of his own free will and he's decided not to return and I think we should all respect that. As a matter of fact, I'm sorry that I said I was looking for my dad. I'm not looking for him. I don't want to find him. All I want to do is find out more about him. And this flat of yours, I think this is the key to it all. I think if I can set foot in there one more time, because I've been there already by the way when I was six. If I can go there and take a look around, maybe I'll be able to make my peace with him somehow. That's all you want to do, said Olaf. Make peace with your father. That's what this is all about. Yes, I said. Oh, for goodness sake, said Olaf. You should be grateful you had a father in the first place. I spent the whole of my childhood wishing my father didn't exist. I hated the man. He was a bully, a manipulator and an utter failure. Your father is none of those things. Be grateful for the days you spent with him. Stop sticking your nose into matters that don't concern you. I'm in the bathroom right now. There is a river just beyond my back fence. If I aim correctly, I shall be able to sink this phone right into it from the bathroom window. I'll keep you on the line. You can hear what it sounds like when it sinks to the bottom. I will, of course, purchase a new phone with a different number. Please do not attempt to contact me again. I will say this before I leave you. If your father had wanted you to know about Peter Bennington, he'd have told you about him. Your father didn't want you to know who Peter Bennington was and therefore it's not my place to tell you. I realise there's this thing called the internet now and if you want to find Peter Bennington, no doubt you can find him quite easily. Just bear in mind, it makes no real difference whether you know or whether you don't. Peter won't be able to tell you where your father is because he doesn't know. I know he doesn't know because I asked him myself. So, what are you saying? This is what I'm saying, Frank. As it turns out, Olaf was right. If you throw your phone into a river during a call and keep the other person on the line, it really does sound quite interesting. Chapter 12 The next day, Noddy didn't arrive until 11 in the morning. I'd been pacing around my flat since sunrise, considering our next move. I had to look twice when I answered the door. He was virtually unrecognisable. I can't say how, but he appeared to be about 20 years younger, despite wearing clothes that were at least a couple of decades out of date. It was as though he'd literally travelled in time for the mid-1980s. Nice perm, I said. My name's Eggnog, he said. It's a nickname. I'm not going to tell you my real name. It's even more embarrassing than Eggnog. I took Eggnog into my living room and made him a cup of tea. Unlike Noddy, he had it black with three sugars. What's the deal with your furniture? Said Eggnog. Why is it just bean bags and nothing else and no TV? I'm a bit of a minimalist, I said, and I'd rather listen to music than watch television. I'd already explained this to Noddy on numerous occasions, so I guess this explanation was purely for the benefits of his newest persona. Brilliant work yesterday, mate, I said, as we sat on our neighbouring beanbags. I may have put my foot in it a little with Olaf. I told him about our phone call. On the contrary, said Eggnog. Sounds to me like you discovered our best lead yet. This is the first time anyone's actually spoken about your dad's motivation for leaving. The only thing I don't understand is why did Olaf go to the trouble of throwing his phone in the river? If he wanted to destroy it, he could have just chucked it in the toilet. For all I know, that's what he did. But you did say it sounded like he'd thrown the phone through the window into the river. Yes, but I don't really see how that's important. Unless he wanted to make sure it was completely destroyed. If he'd chosen the toilet, it probably wouldn't have flushed, which meant he'd have to fish it out again, which then maybe... Whatever he's hiding on that phone could have been retrieved. If it's lying at the bottom of a river, we'd be less likely to recover anything, even if one of us dived to the bottom and rescued it. Why would we do that? I mean, what kind of sensitive material do you think Olaf has on his phone? Impossible to say without looking. All I'd say is, he's definitely got something to hide. Not necessarily anything to do with my dad. I'm sure he can tell us more about him too. I like what you've uncovered already. This plan of his and the aeroplane sound effect. Sounds like he was planning on leaving the country. He can't do that without his passport, I said. That's one thing that did get established in the police investigation. He didn't take it with him. He could have taken an internal flight, London or Glasgow or wherever. Did the police look into internal flights? I really don't know, I said. My mum used to update me on the phone, but I wasn't really interested at the time. Then you know who we need to speak to next then, don't you? Who, the police? Your mother. You don't think Omar's worth pursuing? He definitely is, said Eggnock. But let's do our groundwork first. Let's talk to someone we know rather than a total stranger. I went silent for a while, thinking about Eggnog's description of my mum as someone we know. For a start, I knew so little about her. I'd lived in this flat for most of my adult life and my mum had never set foot inside it or even expressed an interest in knowing where I lived. This wasn't because she disowned me or anything. She was just happier not being involved in any aspects of my life. I remember our drive from home to my university halls of residence. My new home was around 45 minutes away, but I might as well have chosen to study on a different continent and stay there forever. My mum spent the whole of the journey talking to me. She'd never been one for making big speeches, but clearly it was important to her that I understood the fundamental shift in my living circumstances and what it meant. You may not agree with this, Frank, she said, but we're not like other families. We do things differently. I've done everything I can to make sure you've got the skills you need to succeed in life. I've made sure you've made an effort with your education. I've made sure you know how to eat properly. I've made sure you understand the value of money. I've made sure you have the confidence to interact with other people and not keep worrying about what people think of you. I know you have, I said. And I've done it pretty much single-handedly with your dad out of the house all the time. But really, that's made it a lot easier because if he were around, he'd be sticking his oar in telling me I'm doing it all wrong, and you'd be confused and unhappy, and God knows how you'll have turned out. But you've turned out well. You're a proper grown-up. Unlike a lot of the people you'll be mixing with at university, most families aren't like us, Frank. Most parents carry on treating their children like children, even when they're clearly not. Some of them do it their entire lives. Instead of sending them out into the world, fully equipped to deal with life's stresses and strains, they'll carry on supporting them financially, emotionally, much as they did when they were seven years old. If you want my opinion. And I couldn't help smirking when she said that, because as soon as she used the words, if you want my opinion, she sounded exactly like her husband. My mum was too caught up in her monologue to notice my amusement. If you want my opinion, she said, the birds have got the right idea. Now she definitely sounded like my dad. I wouldn't be surprised if he'd written this little speech for her to rattle off. When baby birds are big enough, they fly the nest. Ironically, that's the expression that normal families use When they're talking about their offspring growing up and leaving home. Fly the nest. But they don't fly the nest. They keep coming back again and again. Whether it's visiting for the weekend or moving back in because they weren't quite ready to leave yet. And even when they do leave, they continue referring to their parents' house as home. Rather than home being the place they're actually living in. Flying the nest means getting the hell out of there, spreading their wings and flying properly away once and for all. And that's what you're doing, Frank. You're flying the nest. You're building your own nest. And I'd be more than happy if you never came back. I think it would be wonderful if you never came back. I hope you don't see this as me rejecting you in some way. I didn't say anything. Of course you'd be welcome to visit, she said. Any time you like, but please don't think of my house as your home anymore. Think of it as the nest you've flown from. OK, I said. You do understand what I'm saying, don't you, Frank? I know that you do because you're an intelligent man and I'm immensely proud of you. In hindsight, this was a weird thing for her to have said, given that this was the one and only time my mum ever told me she was proud of me. It's not weird because she finally came out and said it, it's just odd that, given that she'd never said it before, she'd chosen to add the word immensely. But sometimes people just say things, don't they? And most of the things we say are just spur-of-the-moment pronouncements which may or may not have any tangible relevance. I suppose what I'm trying to say is I've spent too many hours pondering over my mum's use of that one adjective when I know from experience that my mum doesn't put a great deal of thought into a choice of lexicon. I do understand, I said. Thanks, Mum. You know I never wanted children, don't you? She added. Yes, you've mentioned that. But I ended up with one and I made it work. I made you into a proper person, a proper human being, which actually makes me very proud of myself. Let's just brush over the hours I've spent trying to analyse that use of the word actually which may well have signified a contradiction to the earlier statement, i.e. actually, when I said I was immensely proud of you, etc. But now, she continued, it's time for you to move on to your new life with my blessing. Blessing, now there's a funny word, but let's not get carried away. You can be forgiven at this point if you've been given the wrong impression about my mum. I haven't really introduced her properly yet. She's popped up a couple of times prior to this chapter. On both occasions, just a quick walk-on part where she's angry with something my dad has done. And now here she is in her first proper scene and she's delivering what seems to be an impassioned speech and using all sorts of emotionally charged language. But really, that's not what my mum's like at all. She saves her emotions for special occasions. You are right, said Eggnog. You haven't said anything for a while. Just taking a trip down memory lane, as they say, I said. And yes, I think you're right. As much as I don't want to, we do need to go back to my parents' house. If it's going to be painful for you, said Eggnog. I could do what Trevor did yesterday and hook you up to a camera. As it happens, Eggnog is a pest control specialist, which means he's something of an expert at snooping around other people's homes. Thanks, mate, I said. I do appreciate the offer, but I really ought to come myself. If nothing else, it'll be interesting to see the old place again. It's been a long time. Chapter 13. For reasons which I won't go into here, since the late 1980s, my parents' front lawn has been almost completely obscured by eight industrial-sized candy floss-making machines, which have been arranged in a rough square covered by a weather-beaten tarpaulin. I was unsurprised to find the front lawn exactly as it had always been, but I also wondered why my mum hadn't had those units disposed of by now. I'd warned my mum on the phone that myself and my friend Eggnog were coming over to have a chat. She seemed vaguely curious as to what we might have to say for ourselves, but otherwise this was just a casual pop-in. She invited us in and offered us a seat in the dusty living room. I had to clear away a stack of crumpled paperwork and shoe boxes full of old coins and buttons, so that I could get to the armchair. Ahead of me was a broken photocopier, which my parents had been using as a coffee table for as long as I can remember. Do you think this thing is worth something now? I said, pointing at the machine, like a collector's item or something. My mum shrugged. Do you know anyone who collects photocopiers? I suppose not. I was just thinking maybe you could make some money off it and, you know, buy an actual coffee table. This is all your dad's stuff. If he wants to come back and clear it all out, he can. Nothing to do with me. But you live here and he doesn't. And he's not coming back, is he? I'm always expecting him to walk through that door with a bottle of milk in his hand, she said. But you're right, of course, he's gone. I've accepted that. And how do you feel about it?" I said. "I've accepted it. You don't feel angry that he left?" "Not as angry as I'd feel if he was still around." "What do you mean?" "I mean he drove me up the wall a lot of the time. We had a nice little arrangement. I'd look after you and look after the house and he'd go out to work and do whatever else it was that he did. He'd stay out of my way and I'd stay out of his. Usually I was fast asleep in bed by the time he got home and he was gone by the time I woke up. I used to think he was surviving very well on the tiny amount of sleep that he got, but a couple of years ago your Uncle Claude mentioned that your dad used to nap during the day while he was at work. "'His sleeping pattern was all over the place. "'Are you still in touch with Claude?' I said. "'Not really,' she said, "'although, funnily enough, he called me yesterday to warn me about you.' ha <laughs> that's good. "'He said you've been sticking your nose into things or something, "'and apparently you've sent a traffic warden round to his office "'who was asking some awkward questions.' "'Nothing to do with me,' I said. "'All me?' Eggnog chipped in. "'Oh, I'm sure it wasn't,' she said. "'The way Claude described this man, he was about twenty years older than you, and Scottish. "'I'm not sure what Claude's problem is. "'I think it might be something to do with that secret flat the two of them had. "'I wasn't sure whether to burst out laughing or gasp in surprise, so somehow—' "'amid the confusion over how to react, I yawned loudly. "'Oh, excuse me,' I said. "'I didn't realise you knew about that.' "'Oh, it came out many years ago,' she said. "'I don't know if you remember, but he took you there when you were six. "'I remember that very clearly,' I said. "'And I told him it was all over, he wasn't welcome back, "'and he was never going to see you again, all that sort of thing.' And for whatever reason, he begged me to take him back. And I said, that could only happen if he was entirely honest and told me where he'd taken you. And so he told me. And I appreciated his honesty. And I agreed that he can move back in. And he could also continue paying his share of the rent on the additional flat, which seemed like a bargain anyway. He didn't feel betrayed kind of but also i thought it was a really good idea and i told him that i told him go there whenever you want have your own space because that gives me some space too and you see what i mean we had this understanding that's why i don't feel angry about him leaving because i see that as an extension of our initial agreement If he comes back, that's okay, as long as he stays out of my way. If he doesn't come back, even better. Good luck to him. Also, if he doesn't come back, maybe you could clear up all of his stuff at some point. I can help you if you like. Or not, Eggnob chipped in. Frank is much more comfortable in a tidy room. But of course, he doesn't live here anymore, so it's your choice, that's what I'm saying what's your name by the way elizabeth said my mum lovely name said eggnog do you shorten it liz lizzie beth i never shorten my name never it's four syllables long always good for you elizabeth how about you she said what's your real name eggnog i must prefer eggnog thanks i should have offered you a drink she said. Would you like a cup of tea? Yes, please. Black, three sugars. How about you, Frank? Uh, Yes, please, tea. Also black, no sugar. My mum disappeared off to the kitchen to make the first cup of tea she'd ever made me. She seems to have taken a liking to you, I told Eggnog. I'm actually rather charming. "'said Eggnog. "'A lot more charming than Trevor. "'Maybe you should be the good cop "'in this little interrogation of ours. "'Maybe she'll open up to you more.' "'If we're going to do that,' said Eggnog, "'I suggest you start acting a little more oddly. "'Be a proper weird cop.' "'How do I do that?' "'I'm sure you'll think of something.' "'My mum returned with two cups of tea "'and a large glass of neat gin for herself.' ''Thank you, Elizabeth,'' said Eggnog. ''No problem. Sorry for not offering you one earlier. I'm not used to having guests.'' Eggnog picked up his mug and gave the piping hot liquid a casual blow. ''I'll be honest,'' he said. ''I think Frank has been beating about the bush somewhat. He hasn't mentioned this properly yet, but he's actively investigating what happened to his father.'' My mum looked genuinely puzzled. ''There's been an investigation already,'' she said. ''It doesn't sound like they did a very good job,'' said Eggnog. ''Too much obstruction, perhaps, from those who knew him. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand the police were never made aware of this secret flat Frank Senior frequented.'' My mum shrugged. ''You didn't tell them about it either?'' It didn't seem relevant. Claude was very nervous about anyone finding out about it. He has this thing about reputation for some reason. People's reputations were at stake. So, no, I didn't mention it to the police. I don't see what good it would have done. Did you ever visit the flat yourself, Elizabeth? No, why would I? Nobody else knew that I knew. Anyway, it was Frank's place. Nothing to do with me. What about Claude? I said. What about him? It sounds like he knew that you knew. Yes, she said. But I didn't know that he knew that I knew, not until years later, not until Claude reported Frank missing. At this point, I decided to start clucking like a chicken. They both ignored me. "'So you didn't report your husband missing?' said Eggnog calmly. "'No,' my mum replied. "'Like I said, Claude did.' "'I decided to combine the clucking with a physical impersonation. "'I jumped to my feet, waggled my elbows up and down and pecked at the air. "'Why didn't you call the police yourself?' "'Well, at first I didn't notice he was gone.' Then a couple of days went by and I remembered he said he was going to buy some milk, which is strange because we already had milk in the fridge. I assumed he'd been working or gambling or staying at his secret flat or something else. Then Claude called, saying he hadn't been at work for two days. I said I hadn't seen him. Claude said he'd look into it himself. He called me again the next day, distraught this time. He asked if I'd heard from Frank. I said no. Neither of us had ever had a mobile phone, so we weren't able to contact each other that way. I just always trusted that whenever he went out, he'd come home at some point. Maybe not the same day, but eventually. But time ticked by, and Claude... "'Couldn't handle it any more. "'He didn't call me this time. "'He turned up on the doorstep. "'He told me he was going to call the police, "'and I said that was probably a good idea. "'And that's when he came out with it. "'Don't tell anyone about the flat. "'You know the flat I mean, don't you?' "'I just said, OK. "'That flat wasn't important to me. "'Clearly it was very important to Claude and his friends.' I paused from strutting about the carpet, recalling the song I'd written all those years ago to the tune of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and I bawled it at the top of my voice. Frank, Claude, Olaf, Martin, Ben, Olaf, Graham, then there's Len. I resumed my chicken strut. Sorry about Frank, Junior, said Eggnog. It seems to me that his dad's disappearance didn't necessarily feel momentous at the time of it happening. But now, for whatever reason, he's... Well, as you can see, he's taking it badly. But anyway, Elizabeth, that song he just sang, did you recognise any of those names? Mumum mum shook her head. Only the first two. I had nothing whatsoever to do with Frank's friends. They were all drunks. She took a large mouthful of gin. You know, it would be great if Frank Jr. could visit that flat again just to take a look around. Maybe Frank Sr. left a key here and an address. He may have left a key, said my mum, hidden away in one of his drawers or whatever. They're all still upstairs. I haven't touched anything of his. But I know for a fact that Claude changed the locks. He was so paranoid that the police would find a spare key somewhere when they searched this place. And then by some miracle they'd magically managed to figure out which door the key was for and let themselves in and find God knows what. So he changed the locks, pointlessly as it turns out. The police took one look at this place and realised they didn't have the manpower to rifle through all this junk. After all, what were they likely to find anyway? Elizabeth, said Egnoc, The more I hear about this case, the more it's becoming clear to me that the police didn't do much of a job. They were excellent, actually, she said. They interviewed everyone with a connection to Frank. They put feelers out. All over the place. Traces on his credit cards, all the usual stuff. They did whatever was in their power. Ridiculous, said Eggnog. Sorry, Elizabeth. I really do think the police have been either wilfully negligent or utterly amateurish. The first thing they should have done is conduct a thorough search of this house. All it takes is one tiny scrap have evidence a travel receipt, a hotel booking, evidence of links to other parts of the country. They know all about his links to other parts of the country, whether from the southeast I've told them that. Elizabeth, said Eggnog, all I'm saying is maybe we should take a look around ourselves. If we don't find anything there's no harm done. If we do find something, maybe we can solve this thing ourselves. Why would we want to? She said. Frank left of his own free will. He doesn't want to be found. That's exactly what your son said, said Eggnog. Rest assured, he doesn't want to find him either. All Frank Jr. wants to do is achieve a better understanding of what his dad was like. And that's why it's important that we find this flat. All Frank Jr. wants to do is take a look around this secret flat, see it for himself, and then perhaps he can have a go at seeing the world through his father's eyes. Is that too much to ask? My mum drained the rest of her glass in one swift jerk. She exhaled and said, Absolutely not. I think that's a great idea. You boys have a good look around. Don't mind me. Would you like to help, Elizabeth? No, I wouldn't. Feel free to rummage around yourself, though, Eggnog. I stopped doing the chicken mime. Thanks, Mum. Chapter 14 My mum sat in the living room reading a book and drinking more gin while myself and Eggnog set about searching the house. Neither of us were sure what we were actually looking for. It was becoming clear that my dad's disappearance, unlike any other aspect of his life, had been carefully planned. It seemed unlikely that my dad would leave even the faintest trace of where he'd planned to escape to. But as I kept on telling myself, this wasn't an attempt to find my dad This was a mission to learn more about him and it certainly felt like I was learning more about him in each corner we poked our noses into. But after two hours of snooping through my parents' possessions we uncovered nothing of interest. There was so much junk to work our way through it made sense to take a different zone each. Eggnog started with the garage and moved on to the downstairs floor I worked my way through the bedroom upstairs. The room I used to sleep in was stacked from floor to ceiling with green plastic crates, each of them filled with irrelevant odds and ends. There were old school textbooks with their covers missing, body parts from various mannequin dolls, incomplete jigsaws, dented tin cups, Endless piles of rusty screwdrivers and bent nails. The two questions I'd asked myself on our arrival were yet to be answered. Why had my dad bothered to keep hold of all of this stuff? And why hadn't my mum bothered throwing it all away? Then, as I was rifling through an old shoebox full of shattered vinyl records, it finally dawned on me what all this stuff had in common. I went downstairs to find Eggnog, on his hands and knees, fishing misshapen coat hangers out from behind an armchair, while my mum sat reading in the corner. "'I've realised something,' I said, "'and I don't know what it means, but I know it means something.' "'What's that?' said my mum, not looking up from her book. "'Everything's broken!' All the things my dad collected and stored in this house over the years, none of it's in any kind of useful working order. That can't just be a coincidence. He wasn't holding on to things despite the fact that they're broken beyond repair. He was deliberately collecting things because they were broken. Tell me I'm wrong. It's as good a theory as any, I suppose, said my mum. You really don't know. ''Are you telling me you don't know why my dad collected mountains of broken stuff?'' ''You didn't ask him at the time what the hell he was doing.'' ''We stayed out of each other's way,'' she said simply. ''We didn't talk. We didn't tell each other anything unless we absolutely had to.'' ''Your dad and me lived separate lives, Frank. It may not have seemed that way to you as a child.'' No, I said that's exactly how it seemed as a child. For the most part, he lived a separate life to both of us. But still, his presence was here in the house, even when he wasn't. And weirdly, it's like he's still here. Hang on a minute. I span around on the spot, looking the walls up and down as I did so. The pictures aren't here anymore. You took all the pictures down, but you kept everything else? Why? Why? I didn't take the pictures down, said my mum. I realised later your dad took them all down before he left, every single one. He took them with him. They're the only thing he took. He left his clothes, his boxes of junk. It was as though he had no prized possessions other than those pictures. I'd have to agree with you there, I said. We've searched this place from top to bottom and found nothing resembling prized possessions. Do you think he meant it as a metaphor or something? A metaphor for what? I don't know, the state of his mind maybe? Things being broken? It's difficult to say because I know so little about him. No offence mum, but you're not giving me much to go off. You're assuming I know him better than you, she said. I'm not sure I do. You married him? You wouldn't marry a total stranger. You must have known who he was. My mum rolled her eyes in an odd sort of way, and I was just about to ask her what that gesture signified when Eggnog popped his head up from behind the neighbouring chair with a crumpled white envelope in his hand. What's this? he said. I took the envelope from him and examined the doodle someone had drawn on the back. ''Did you do this, Mum?'' I said. She shook her head. ''That's your dad's handiwork.'' I examined it further. It was all done in a thick black marker. It was an oval-shaped spiral design with a range of decorative flourishes, which gave the impression my dad had really thought about what he was drawing— Rather than it being just some random scribbling. What's it a picture of? I said. My mum scoffed, suddenly looking rather drunk. Apparently it's a map. He drew those all the time. Your dad had this imaginary place in his head. It he called it Nimble Land or sometimes Nimbleton or Nimble City. Presumably, Nimbleton and Nimble City are areas within Nimble Land, I said. I have absolutely no idea, my mum chuckled. I didn't listen to a word he said. Do you have any more of these? I said. Somewhere, probably, nestled within an empty fish tank or pinned to a torn collection of cork board. Feel free to look. You really don't know where any of them are, I said. My mum chuckled again. (laughs) Shouldn't you be clucking like a chicken at this point? You're supposed to be the weird cop. How do you know about that? I was eavesdropping while I was in the kitchen. It's okay. You go ahead with your good cop, weird cop routine. It's actually quite entertaining. I decided to ignore her and signalled for Eggnog to follow me up the stairs. "'That was a good find, mate,' I said. "'I'm not sure what it means, "'but it would be interesting to see if we can find any more of these.' "'Let's do it.' "'You sure you're okay with this? "'You've worked very hard today. "'We could pop back another time. "'Clearly all this stuff's going nowhere.' "'Might as well crack straight on,' said Eggnog. "'Today I have the energy of a man 20 years my junior.' "'Great.' Two more hours passed, during which time we managed to uncover three more of my dad's doodles, two of which were initialed NT and NC, presumably meaning Nimbleton and Nimble City. I couldn't stop looking at them. My mum was tugging on my nerves, but these pictures had really made my day and definitely made this visit worthwhile. I loved the idea that my dad had invented a whole world that he could escape into any time he liked. Something was slowly beginning to dawn on me. My dad had very little in the way of escapism in his life. His only hobbies were fishing and gambling. I'm not sure how much fishing he actually did, and gambling wasn't really a hobby because he considered it his second job. From his point of view, he was working all the time. So it's good to know he had something like nimble land to occupy his mind. That and the flat. Whatever went on there. Shall I check the garage again? Said Eggnog. Nah, I said. Thanks, mate, but I'm happy with what we got here. We're really making progress, aren't we? I believe we are. Downstairs, we found my mum rocking back in her seat, still chuckling to herself. ''Are you okay, Elizabeth?'' said Eggnog. ''I'm absolutely fine, thank you,'' she replied. ''I hope we haven't caused you too much stress.'' ''Really, it's just a regular day for me.'' ''Do you always drink this much gin?'' ''Most days, yes. I like it.'' ''As long as we haven't stirred up any ill feelings family-wise, it can't have been easy.'' "'with your husband's disappearance?' "'My mum threw her head back, cackling. "'Ha-ha! <laughs> He's not my husband!' "'How do you mean?' "'My mum stopped laughing for a moment. "'I mean exactly that,' she said seriously. "'He's not my husband.' "'Surely you couldn't have divorced him without being in contact,' I said. "'Have you actually been in touch?' Absolutely not. I've heard nothing since he popped out for that pint of milk. So how can he not be your husband anymore? My mum started chuckling again. He never was. (laughs) Isn't that the biggest joke of the lot? He never was my husband. He's just a man who happens to have the same name as me. OK, I said, I think we've heard enough, mum. Thanks for all your help. I didn't do anything to help. No, but thank you for the cup of tea and thanks for, you know, what, she said. Nothing. I'll see you again sometime. Thank you, Elizabeth, said Eggnog. Thank you, Eggnog. I do hope we meet again. She hiccuped and we left. thanks for listening not a bad book right it's good it's very good and it gets better as it goes along so stick around for the later parts part three coming your way very soon once again rag bag alliance your mission is to buy a copy of the paperback version of this book and give it to someone you love tell them it's from me how we're eventually going to take over the world one copy of everything I am at a time further details at frankburton.co.uk check that out and I will see you very very soon Bag Bag Podcast is part of BritPod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritPodScene.com or follow BritPod Scene on Twitter to find out more.